Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are so thrilled to be joined in the virtual studio space by our friend and colleague, Bridget Todd. Hello, Bridget. Hello. I'm so excited to be back here with you all. So say we missed you. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I miss you too, as always. You're so busy though. We know. We know. You're constantly going. Well, I can always make room for my two favorite ladies. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, We were discussing before this, we're very excited for this topic, particularly because we have different levels of experience when it comes to computers and technology. And in this case, Samantha, you're saying you don't know Mac very well. No, I am so not in the loop. I've never used the Mac. I don't have an iPhone. I'm so far away from those products. And I'm a little scared of it. Because every time that I've been on a Friends, I literally look at it and touch a button, something goes wrong, and I hand it right back. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're like, I launched a missile. I don't know what the f- I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just started a war somewhere. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I feel like that too, though, because my phone is a swipe. And one time my friend handed me her, her phone and was like, can you text this message? And it was not a swipe. And I stared at it like, this makes no sense to me. I cannot figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it becomes like technology, when you're used to one way and then you try and figure out yeah. something else, I feel like it's a trap. It's so true. It's so true. So I use an iPhone. Most of my friends do not use iPhones. They use like Google Pixels. When I am handed a Google Pixel, it does not matter how many times I've been schooled and how to do the most the most basic stuff. Right. right? Yeah. I'm not talking about anything advanced. I have to ask like, wait, is it this? Is it that? Every time without uh-huh. Right. (laughs) Which actually relates really well to what we're talking about today. So who did you bring for us to discuss, Bridget? So today we're discussing Susan Kerr. I'm so excited to talk about her, mostly because it's Women's History Month. And so I think it's a good time to honor women who, you know, maybe don't always get a lot of the loud public support. And also the fact that Susan Kerr, despite being very much part of tech history, she's still alive. She's still with us. I'm I'm a big believer in giving people their flowers while they're still alive to smell them. And so not waiting until someone is no longer here to be like, oh, I I loved their work. I loved their work. But celebrating their achievements and their legacy while they're still here. She's very much still in tech, making tech history as we speak. And I also just feel like sometimes I come on the show and I bring topics that are a little negative because Let's face it, sometimes being a woman on the internet is not that fun, but there's also lots of fun, joyous, cool, quirky aspects of it as well. So I'm super excited to talk about Susan Kerr. Yes, and I never heard about her story, and I loved it so much because um, I know we've talked before on the show a lot about women in technology space and how there is often these negative aspects to it or being intimidated off of it. In, in various ways. And as somebody who's really creative, like, we're in my cosplay closet, as I call it, in here. <laughs> but, like, I love the application of how she got into technology. I think it is such a great story. Yes, yes. So let's get into it. I mean, so if you've ever spent any time around, not just Macs, but computers in general, you've probably encountered Susan Kerr's work or her legacy. So first and foremost, I should say, if you have not seen a picture of her, There's an iconic picture of her with this like awesome 80s blown out curly hair 
and a sweatshirt and these like amazing New Balance sneakers with her sneakers kicked up on her desk at her old school computer. Y'all, please Google a picture of her because it is iconic. And truly, just this one picture, I saw it on the subreddit Old School Cool. I was like, (laughs) who is this woman? I have to look her up and find out everything about her. She is amazing. Yes, it's so effortlessly cool in a way that I will never achieve. Like I saw it and I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like I'm looking at it right now. I have to Google it. And I'm like, this is kind of what people want to look like today outside of the outdated computers in the background, which, by the way, I use those in elementary school, so don't start with me. (laughs) A. B. (laughs) Like, I'm like, no, you are. She is exactly what people are like, oh, we want to look like this. This is such a great throwback. And she looks so comfortable, so relaxed, and ridiculously cool. I want to be this cool. Yes, she is like an advertisement for Everlane. Like, I feel like the (laughs) normcore, like, vibes of like, oh, baggy, baggy sweatshirt and like, like relaxed fit jeans. She's rocking it. (laughs) Honestly, you could wear the outfit that she's wearing in like 1980, whenever this photo was taken. You could wear today and people will be like, oh, cool outfit. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, this outfit looks so comfortable. But again, yeah, she looks so freaking stylish that I'm like, uh, I don't want to be back here in this fashion because I did wear that once upon a time. And that was when it was supposed to be cool when I was a young baby. So... (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, Susan Kerr, she designed a huge part of the digital infrastructure of using a Mac computer back in the 80s. And so, I'm talking all of the fonts, all of the typography, and all of the little icons. And so if you ever remember the little Happy Mac when you booted up a computer, like the little computer with a smiley face, that was Susan Care. The concept of the icons for your computer sort of matching up with the thing that you were going to do, even if you don't use a Mac, even if you use a PC, that's still a concept that we use today. So she really was an early architect of how being online sort of looked and felt. And then also just sort of the concept of it, sort of how we conceptually move around when we're using a computer. And it's funny because I had also never heard of her. I've been using a Mac for most of my life. It was like the first computer that we had in our home when I was a kid, like in what my parents called the computer room <laughs> where like you could you could never bring a snack or a drink or my, my yes. dad would kill you was a Mac. And I had never even heard of her, even though she had shaped such a big part of my online experiences, both as a child and today. So really excited to be, you know, giving her a little bit of shine because that's that's so iconic that she, you know, was the architect of that. Right. Yeah. So the little story that I had about this, like this Happy Mac, the one reason I kind of know what that is. Uh, now, I've seen the other things. I've seen the watch little icon mm-hmm. before. I feel like a lot of these are associated to me as something bad is about to happen because I did something <laughs> wrong signs usually. Because the one episode that I remember with uh, in Sex in the City, and yes! we're gonna go, you know what I'm talking about, yes! where her Mac crashes and she gets a sad Mac. And the dude keeps telling her, you got the sad Mac. Sorry, you can't fix it. And this whole conversation about the sad Mac. And I'm like... Why does it have to be a sad Mac? And then the dead Mac, because it's got the X's on the mm-hmm. eyes and about how angry it looks. I was like, yeah, that does not make me want to get a Mac. <laughs> yeah, if he, I feel like that episode probably scared a lot of people. Also, fun fact, this is how deep my Sex in the City knowledge goes. The guy who tells her that at the computer store, Asif Mondi from The Daily Show. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, so I was like, oh, he's a comedian. I love it when they bring in comedians that you yes. don't really know, but you you always know their face. Love it, love it. Annie, you got to hop on board. This is what you're missing out when you haven't seen Sex in the City. Wait, Annie's never seen it? She's seen I've like two seen, episodes. 
I've seen one the first episode and that's it, really. Girl, what girl, what are you putting on in the background while you're like doing something else? <laughs> like what like what are you putting on in the background when you're doing the dishes? Come on. <laughs> I'm ready. I want to I want to embark on this journey. I'm just a little nervous, but I <laughs> So, Bridget, when we have our sex in the city, we're going to do a watch and like kind of a live watching, live viewing party. You want to join us? Yes, of course. You know, and and they're getting ready to make another reboot of the movie, which, I mean, I I have a love-hate relationship with Sex and the City in that you look back and you're like, well, this was problematic or like, well, this is not good. But there's just something about it where I'm like, I know I'll probably watch it. Like, (laughs) I know they're they're, they're like, you'll take this like problematic movie with like a bunch of lazy puns. Like, just take it. Like, they, they know what I want. But I mean, like Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Carrie, that Mac at the very beginning, like at all of the things, like the fact that she carries it around, like as her treasure, like she carries yes. it as this, like she and the oh. Mac go hand in hand in the show. Her work, I feel, is grounded around the Mac. Like if, you, really if you kept watching the episode toward the end when she moves to Paris, she leaves her Mac in her apartment. So like Charlotte goes to her apartment and she's like, her computer was just sitting there. Like, it's like such a big deal. And it's actually funny that you say this because when I was thinking through this episode, I didn't think about this, but now I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) How many different times have Max been, like I'm thinking of um, Legally Blonde when Elle Woods uh, goes to get her like orange Mac and all of her like, stuffy law students are on their black laptops and she's on the orange Mac. Right. I guess I had never really thought about how many times Macs have been sort of part of popular culture. It has. It kind of goes into like being a designer piece almost. Yeah. I think I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you don't have to get permission to show Mac. Like, normally you have to get the companies Mm. and pay, but they wanted people to think like, oh, this is a cool, stylish, ubiquitous technology. I think the only time you have to check is if it's something like real, real bad. (laughs) Like, real bad. (laughs) You're using that computer for. (laughs) Yeah, you're like beating a man to death with it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the only time. But I mean, like, I remember as I'm looking at some of these things, I remember seeing the little bomb icon as a part of the show as well. And again, like I said, that to me is like a big warning sign. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what the bomb means, but the bomb means something bad. Yeah, the bomb, you see the bomb designed by Susan Kerr. Hopefully you never have to see it. But if you you put in a command that like doesn't work and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, no good, bad, you know? And also, I mean... Even the even the the different icons that you're describing, the sad Mac, the bomb. One of the things that that Susan Kerr really um, architected was this idea of the interface being super user friendly. So when you do something that is bad, it is very obvious that it is bad. It is a bomb. <laughs> yep. It is a sad face. Like it could not be more clear that you have done something right. incorrect. Or when something is good, you know, when you would boot up a Mac, you would see a smiley face. All of that was intentionally designed by Kerr to make people who know, might have been using a computer for the first time, who might have been a little bit skittish about using a computer, help them sort of shepherd them through the experience in ways that are like super easy to understand, which I really appreciate as someone who, even as someone who enjoys tech, can sometimes be a little bit like tech challenged, shall we say. You're right. (laughs) As I am. It definitely tells me when I'm doing something wrong. Definitely, I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting. Great. And look at that happy face. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes, and those are things you take for granted, right? Like, somebody had to think through that process and design those things, especially when computers were so new and people were, like, 
what is this huge behemoth thing that's expensive? I don't want to wreck it <laughs> by pressing the wrong button. Exactly. And I mean, what's funny is that like some people who are a bit younger might be thinking, like, oh, what's the big deal? But truly, like, keep in mind that back then in the early days of personal computers, like most people did not have a personal computer in their home at that point. And so computers were these big, clunky, boxy nightmares that were really inclined toward mathematicians or engineers, not just like your regular user. And so somebody had to take the time to design ways of like illustrating what you were doing in ways that would be simple and user-friendly and not scary, not intimidating. Because if, you know, if the whole idea is that you want people to feel the freedom of having a personal computer like in their house, it has to feel like something they can really master themselves. And so Susan Kerr's design, I think, was a big part of why personal computing later took on. Or took off. Yeah. <laughs> took on. <laughs> right. Her history is pretty interesting. Why don't you tell us how she even got started into this industry? So this is my favorite thing. So her background was in art, right? So she was a sculptor. She worked in visual arts. And so she is not someone who has hard technical skills. She described herself as completely non-technical. And the reason that she first got involved in graphic design in the first place is because her mom taught her these, these skills that we, I guess, commonly associate with femininity, so like needlepoint and embroidery, which luckily, those two skills work in small grids. So if you've ever done needlepoint, you know, you're moving a thread through like a tiny box. And so when she was designing things on a computer for Apple, it also was a small box. And so if it wasn't for her mom teaching her these highly kind of like domestic tasks, we might not, like personal computing might be, might have gone a completely different direction. And so I just love that because it's such a good reminder that you don't have to be a coder, you don't have to be a hacker to make an impression in tech or to, or to have ownership over it. And so I always like to remember that, that if it wasn't for her mom teaching her how to sew and do needlepoint, truly, I might not be recording this podcast on my MacBook Pro right now. Things might look different. <laughs> When you're thinking about people you do associate with, particularly Mac, but like technology and computers in general, it is often men. And you do often have this assumption that, oh, they must be like really technically minded and gotten a lot of education in those fields. And like the names we remember are them. But this is a huge part. What Susan Kerr did is a huge part of how the technology we use, particularly with Macs, but in other things. Um, and it is what you, like a non-traditional route and yes. this sort of feminized skill set and this kind of traditionally masculized or seen as a very masculine field. And I just love it. I love it so much. Yeah, it makes me, it's, it's a good reminder for all of us. You know, I did an interview on my own podcast with this really amazing historian and technologist, Claire Evans. And she has this book all about like the history of women in computing. And I guess the thesis would be, you know, that we are often told that technology is a boys club and that women and other marginalized people are trying to like break, break their way in. But actually, women have been at the start of computing since the beginning. And so it's like rightfully our domain. We are not trying to break in anywhere. Like it is our landscape. And that some of the reasons why women kind of get pushed out of tech, both, you know, in terms of like careers, but also just in terms of like who gets remembered, who doesn't, who goes overlooked. First of all, just to be clear, a lot of it is just good old fashioned sexism, like mm -hmm. nothing, nothing special about that. 
But then another aspect of it is exactly what you were saying is that a lot of times the contributions that women have made to computers and technology are things that are a little bit harder to preserve. And so, you know, if you if you make an actual computer that can go in a museum, that's that's a, a solid, tangible thing. If you design a concept or, you know, do something cool on a message board or develop a, an icon or, you know, something graphic that is that is less tangible, those things are harder to preserve and sort of more ephemeral. And so a lot of that work throughout the years has been associated with women and, and, and feminization, this idea that like women are the, a lot of the times the ones who are building the things that are a little more difficult to hold on to. And thus, these contributions can really go overlooked unless we make intentional efforts to preserve them, to highlight them, to amplify them, all of that. So completely agree, completely agree. Yes. And I mean, here we are talking about it. And <laughs> because I'll take every opportunity to bring it up, I do think too, like if you look at something like fan fiction, the, the website AO3 was one of the biggest coding projects of its time. And it was women who did it, but it, it doesn't get a lot of respect because it's women and marginalized people who did it. And it's seen as this kind of weird corner of women fandom mm-hmm. and not therefore not worth the respect as something else more masculine. Right. Technology is nothing without people using it for something, right? Without users. And so and those people who were who were building that they were architects of something important and, the, and like that we would not even see that as worthy of preservation or like mentioning is a real crime. And I think we really do have to go back and look at history and say, well, where are the times where because this was associated with women or marginalized people just doing something geeky on the internet, you know how women are, whether it's fan fiction or, you know, recipe blogs or, or anything like that. Why do those things not deserve to be remembered in the same way that some of the other more obvious contributions to computing and technology in our digital landscape. Like, I completely agree that we need to have a whole-scale sort of rethinking of what what is worthy of preservation because I'm not down to just live in a world where the stuff that we make, that marginalized people, that women make, is just not worthy of preservation. No way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely not. (laughs) Thank you for letting me bring up fan fiction all the time. I cannot help myself. (laughs) Um, But I also think it's a good, like, correlation to Susan Kerr's story where there is this sort of, like, creative, non-technical thing that she was involved with. And she was able to translate that into technology because there was this need. And I think also, like, again, having to kind of predict what people's concerns would be and uh, like predict what would soothe those concerns and be clear, like coming, perhaps coming from a different background actually helped her with that. I think so. I I love that point. I, I think so. So she says that when she first got the call to design things for Apple, she was just like, I don't know what any of this is. I love this little detail. She was in the middle of working on a life-size sculpture of a hog <laughs> when she got a call. Which, what? like, if that doesn't if that doesn't tell you all you need to know about right. Susan Care, I feel like that really. <laughs> oh, I want to. I want to know she finished it. <laughs> yes. yes. Ooh, that's a good question. I want to know. I want to see this picture of what she was working on. Did she get to finish it? <laughs> yes. I need a Internet picture. Internet flus, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <No. laughs> Elbow deep in hog, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. So she, get, she gets this call from Andy Hertzfield, who she had gone to high school with, and he was a member of the original Apple Macintosh development team during the 80s. 
And he asked her to hand draw some icons and fonts to help inspire what was going to be this like Mac interface. This was a completely new concept to her. She's like, I had no idea what I was doing. But luckily, Andy had an idea because he knew that she worked with design and graphics. He told her to go out and buy the smallest, tiniest graph paper that she could find and then use it to block out 32 by 32 inch squares and fill them with color to kind of come up with the designs because what she would be designing would be a matrix that was essentially a grid. So again, back to that sort of needlepoint embroidery um, upbringing that she had, which really helped her work in this grid function, like truly probably could not have provided a better basis or education for the work that she would go on to be doing that she had no idea, you know, that she would be so foundational in. And Luckily, these skills really came to her rescue. She says, bitmap graphics are like mosaics and needlepoint and other pseudo-digital art forms, all of which I had practiced before going to Apple. This is what she told somebody in an interview in 2000. So again, like you never know what skill is going to apply later in your life. Like I'm sure when her mom was teaching her needlepoint, she probably was like, this is really fun and awesome she probably was not thinking, and I will go on to revolutionize personal <laughs> computing because you have taught me how to do needlepoint, mom. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign and I use Python coding to uh, run it. So basically Python is a bunch of if-then statements. But I think you can you can take like a really creative, non-technical thing. And you can construct it in a way where you can like make it work in that sense. Because if you think about like conversation, if X, then Y, like you can, I don't know, I there's something I find really interesting that you can take those things and you can experiment with them in that way. You could take needlepoint and and think about it in this way of like coding. Like I, I yeah. love that stuff. <laughs> Are there other things that you have learned that you feel might help you when you're doing, when you're coding in Python? Like, are there other skills that you're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that this would be um, something that would help me think about uh, Python, but actually has been helpful? So something that helps me, like, use Python more? Or, or just in general in, in the work that you do when you're building out these things? The reason I started doing that is because essentially it's almost exactly like this. You have to, when you're running a game, you have to predict what people are going to do. And that could be anything, right? Like that could be literally anything. And so you, it's like project management where you have to analyze a person and then try to make that work in a game system, right? Like in a kind of technical rule-based game. So you've got this like really illogical, chaotic person. Now I've got to make that work in, in a way where I can say, like, if X, then Y. Uh, so the game doesn't break. <laughs> so I would say, like, reading people and project management, because, again, a lot of interactions in life, it's almost cold to think of it this way, but you can see in a, like, technical sense of, like, person Y needs this, therefore these actions happen. Like, you can map out to a certain extent, um, people and their behavior. That's so fascinating. It's a whole theorem. You have to do all these little, like, hypotheses of this may happen, so you have to problem solve ahead of time, which I know nothing about Dungeons & Dragons, just what she tells me. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. I, I mean, it completely fits, and I think if you take that to its logical next step, like, in tech workplaces and stuff, 
This is why I always say, if you're someone who's listening and you're like, I want to be more involved in tech, I want to work in a tech space, you do not have to have tech hard skills to be someone who makes your living or takes up a big footprint in tech. People need to have people reading skills, problem solving skills, critical thinking skills. Those are not, you know, necessarily what we think of as like tech hard skills. But these are all things that go into, you know, working, like being able to think in this way. And so I just love this example because I think it really does illustrate how all of these different skills that aren't necessarily the the hard skill or knowing Python or knowing, you know, knowing the code, they will help you when you're when you're doing these kinds of things. It's like a whole way of thinking. I love that example. Right. I mean, there's definitely a whole correlation between art, music, and math. And we know that that's been proven to be a linkage. And which is why when people talk about losing arts and losing music is really detrimental for a lot of kids' learnings and just um, overall development. And this is one of those more things because not only was she doing art, which she's amazing at, which I've, I saw some of the pieces that she's selling now. I'm like, wow, it's gorgeous. <laughs> but that that it translated into, yeah, these little squares and dots and which also equals numbers and such. This is me knowing all this stuff, obviously. But the fact (laughs) that it's a greater picture of how it's all correlated and it is linked. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's why I obviously am such a big advocate for young people going into STEM and STEAM fields and and getting that kind of education. But I also think you're exactly right that you have to have a well-rounded approach. And so if we lose the arts, if we lose music and the funding for these things, when people are like, oh, well, just learn to code and get a job like that. It'll be so much harder if these students are not well-rounded students who do not have a well-rounded arts education. And so, you know, I am an English major, right? Like I did not have a hard skills background. So many people who made a, a big splash in tech had arts degrees, humanities degrees, you know, studied music, studied literature. And so I, I definitely am a big advocate for a well-rounded approach. I am not someone who is like, oh, just learn to code. That'll solve all your problems. Because we do need all kinds of skills to have, you know, young people who are really equipped to go into these fields. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things in this story, in Susan Carey's story, is one of my favorite kind of random... I guess it's a good tell of when you grew up in terms of technology when you're talking about her legacy. Because if you examine some of these symbols, like my ex-boyfriend used to argue so hard, like we need to redefine what these mean because they don't mean the same thing anymore. Right. One is (laughs) the icon for saving, if you could talk about that. Oh, it is such a good one. So Susan Carrick came up with that concept of the icon being an association or an illustration of the thing that you were doing. So like the paint bucket being used to fill a surface with color or like the scissors being used to be the cut function. So when you think about the save function, right? So if you are a contemporary of me and I think Annie and, and Samantha, I think you got yes. you all as well. You, when you were saving something, you had to save it on a floppy disk. You had to put a floppy disk, that square with the metal thingy on it into your computer. And not only that, you had to manually hit save every, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Otherwise, it wouldn't save. Now, here in 2021, you're probably working in Google Docs or some other kind of interface. It saves it automatically. You don't have to put any kind of external thing into your computer for it to save. The, this, the concept is, is so different. Yet, the little disk, it's still the image for save. And so I almost wonder, like, I don't know that young people know what that I like. They're probably not as innately familiar with like the floppy disk as we are. Yet that is still the icon for save, even though you don't even really have to save like you used to, right? It's it's, like funny how it's endured. 
Yeah. Oh my God, you just reminded me. We did a time capsule, I think in my eighth grade, sixth grade year. And I think I put in a thing of floppy disks. Like blank ones? Into really? the capsule. Yeah. God, I have a lot of floppy disk memories. I remember, oh my God, if he's listening to this, he's going to kill me. My older brother, he had to do a um, class project. And at the time we were fighting, and I remember he had it on a floppy disk that he left on the computer and I swapped it out with a blank one. So like oh. I put his, I put put his in my backpack and put a blank one on on the computer. So when he got to school, he was like, wait, where's my project? <laughs> oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's real petty. Real it was petty. very petty. It was very petty. Uh. Uh, I, if he's listening to this, I apologize. But you know your <laughs> deserved it. <laughs> but you yes. got what you yes. deserve. on your side, Bridget. <laughs> yes, thank <always>. you. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just remembered that because I knew that it would be outdated by that point. I was right. You were right. You were you were like prophetic here. Yeah, I know, it, right? I'm sure it costs a lot of money, so I can't believe I did that. Oh, they used to be hella expensive. Like yeah. The box of them was like $30. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded, like, why? Maybe I should put one. I just remember putting something to do with a floppy disk. I was like, I'm going to put this in here because it's going to make it dumb. <laughs> I love it. It's like one of those <laughs> things, you know how, um, I think some comedian has this, this line in his stand-up where when you're driving and you want someone to roll down their window, even though most cars no longer have the crank, that's yeah, still the motion that you do is. to tell someone, even though you're like, well, the, the cars haven't really had this for a while. Why am I doing this? <laughs> that's still the enduring motion that you do. But it keeps it, yeah, that's the thing. like she created this in the 80s and it's still iconic and it's still yeah. used today. And even though I may not have known uh, what a Mac was, it was definitely universally used. Right. Well... And that's funny to think about, too, because there's some technologies like the floppy disk that did just go by the wayside. And that's one of my favorite things of Back to the Future, too, when they thought the fax machine was going to be the thing. <laughs> um, but, like, the you have a story in here about, like, the copy machine, right? <laughs> <What> she... <laughs> so she was initially going to have the copy function be a little illustration of a copy machine that you would drag and drop your file that you wanted to be duplicated onto the copier. But copy machines are, like, kind of complicated and like difficult to render at that size. And so that didn't work. And then she got this idea to try an illustration of a cat in a mirror, which I feel like that really tells me a lot about how she was thinking about these illustrations. Like that's a really, like using a cat looking into a mirror as a way to illustrate the copy functionality. I don't know. I just find that to be a very interesting manifestation of what the copy function does. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yes. Maybe because it started with a C, but I approve of that. I want that now. <laughs> I know. I wish that was the case. <laughs> That's the direction we've gone. And I can just imagine, I mean, that would be iconic if that is what it, it was. Like today, that'd be on shirts. Like <laughs> the, cat, the cat just staring into the mirror. <laughs> Yeah, the copycat. <laughs> That's exactly I mean, what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, I, I kind of get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm so good. <laughs> <laughs> that is a creative mind. Like, perhaps mm -hmm. not the most intuitive. Like, that, like <laughs> I think that what she ended up going with was, like, much better. But it's like, I can sort of see her her logic, I guess, in what she was going for with the, with the, with the copycat in the mirror. Yes. It's so good. I'm good with it. <laughs> I would have approved it immediately. <laughs> so at the top, you said that CARES 
still alive today. What's she, what's she up to? So that's my favorite thing about this story is that I feel so often when we're talking about somebody who had a great impact, we're talking about them after they have, you know, aged out of whatever they're doing or they've passed away. Not care. Care is still very much alive and very much involved in tech. So today she works at Pinterest, where you are probably familiar if you use Pinterest with some of her current designs. She designed the image on Pinterest that is modeled after the pushpin that symbolizes pinning an item. So again, that kind of idea of having the icon be kind of a visualization of what the user is supposed to be doing and the spinning button that appears on Pinterest when you refresh. So very much still a person involved in imagining what tech looks like today, the tech that we use all the time. If you use Pinterest, she's in your po- her designs are in your pocket, you know, which I just I just love. Yeah. You can also find her notebooks today. They're part of the permanent collections at the New York and San Francisco Modern Art Museum, which the one in New York is my favorite art museum on the planet. It's so cool. Cannot wait to get back there when COVID is over. And one was included in the recent London Design Museum exhibit called California Designing Freedom. So yeah, she still is this, you know, representing this past and present and perhaps future of design when it comes to tech, you know, still out there, still shaping how we conceptualize the tech that we use every day. I love that so much. And I I just realized that I guess if you look at movies or TV show, that's another application where it's not necessarily a real world application. But if you were a designer and you're designing like something sci-fi, what will this look like in the future? What does this like technology or button or whatever represent? And then being able to communicate that to audiences. So yeah, there's a lot of applications here. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say, Samantha, she has art you can still get? Yeah. Oh, Oh, yes. She uh, had a collection where some of the... and, And I don't know, Samantha, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but If you go to careprints.com, you can find her limited edition prints. Mm -hmm. uh, And they include like the like little logos and things that she designed. You can get like the sad Mac on a poster or the time bomb on a (laughs) t-shirt, right? right? So like some of her stuff is really nice. Like I really wouldn't mind uh, one of these blankets that has all these different icons on it that she designed. And what's funny is that when you go to careprints.com, they talk about how she was one of the original originators of what we think of today is, you know, emojis. And so mm-hmm. I hadn't even really thought about that, that mm-hmm. her designs is why, and I'm emoji obsessed. If you ever text me, get ready to get a million emojis. But <laughs> yeah, just how how fundamental that is in terms of how we think of, you know, representing things online. Yes. And that's another great example of what we were talking about earlier, where emojis filled a gap that was missing, right? And right. we had to like kind of envision what are these emotions? What is this? trying to convey. And like that is another example of something that's kind of artistic, but being in this very kind of technical world. Right. Also, Annie, I don't know. This is what I read earlier. It has something that is uh, related to your superpower. One of your useless superpowers, uh, which is including fonts or typeface. Oh. <laughs> okay. You can recognize. <laughs> I wasn't sure which superpower we were discussing. When I was calling you out, um, which I'm like, I don't know. You could be lying to me, just randomly naming a font, and I'm just believing you. But yeah, because like Chicago was one of them. I know that was one of her first typefaces, mm-hmm. is what it called. And then the emojis, which was, is it Cairo? Is that how you say that? C-A-I-R-O. But that's the blanket, right? So yeah. I mean, she went even farther into the world of computer stuffs. 
I'm so official, y'all. I'm amazing. <laughs> but the fact that she actually created typeface, that actually created like fonts is an interesting thing because I've always wondered who does this? And also, Annie, why do you know these? Could you recognize what Chicago looks like? Chicago 12. <laughs> I want to test you so now. For the, for the listeners who don't know this, I have a <laughs> very useless superpower. It's not as good anymore because I used to edit video all the time. And I actually would because a font does convey an emotion. Or right. it, it does help shape whatever Which is why you're... everybody loves Comic Sans, right? No. <laughs> Fuchera, that's what everybody <laughs> loves. And so I can recognize a font. Like, it is one of my most annoying... You get a little alcohol on me, and I'll be like, there's Fuchera, there's Nancy's chalkboard. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> I apologize to anyone I've ever done that to. Do you have a favorite font? Oh, that's a good question, because I used to really love... I loved the ones that looked like people's handwriting. So I mm. did really like Marker Felt one with a very little bit of drop shadow, very little. Or like Nancy's. I like Nancy's chalkboard. But I don't know if I would say those are my favorite, but they were ones I'd turn to a lot because they, I wanted the, those videos to feel very approachable, which is actually the stuff I've never told you videos. So they're on YouTube and you can go look at all my chalk and marker-based fonts. <laughs> I need to do this right away. <laughs> I also love a good font, you know? Like, I'm not even someone who is technical in this way, but like good design is really important. Like bad design. I can't tell you how many times I've been on like a restaurant website page where I'm like, this is so infuriating. The font yes. is terrible and this user experience is terrible. I don't even <laughs> want to go to this restaurant anymore. Like, it, good, like good design can really open some doors and bad design can really close them. I'll just put it that way. Right. <laughs> it's what Absolutely. matters. Absolutely. <laughs> you are completely correct. But no, I did like that. I just I was like, oh, look, she did this and this. And then that blanket, I was like, oh, I love this blanket. It just has all those essentially emojis that's all over her uh, blankets that she designed. I was like, that is so cool. And then I thought about the fact that Annie loves talking about how she has a superpower. Yes. So you're welcome for telling everyone your superpower. <laughs> It's a good power, right? It's, it's like, probably my huh. most useless one, but also the safest one. I'm glad you went in that direction. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I think I killed, this, I killed that conversation real good, y'all. You're welcome. <laughs> um, well, when it comes to, to care... Uh, and these icons, she's going to have, like, her legacy is a lasting legacy. It is a lasting legacy. And I, I guess, yeah, as I said, I think it's important to highlight, you know, what she did was important. You know, I, I, I couldn't tell you whether or not personal computing would be the same if not for care. But I know that she had an impact. And I think it's important to recognize. And I also just think it's important to, again, underscore that she did all of this as a non-technical person. She told the Smithsonian about her time at Apple I loved working on that project. I always felt so lucky for the opportunity to be a non-technical person in a software group. I was awed by being able to collaborate with such creative, capable, and dedicated engineers. And I, I, yeah, I, I think it's really awesome that she was holding it down on this group of engineers as a non-technical woman doing her thing and really building out a lasting, enduring legacy in a field where things don't often last and don't often endure in this way. So I, I think it's really important to recognize her work. I do too. And I think, you know, even looking back at the time when she was doing this and yeah, being a woman in this non-technical space and, I don't know, creating these things that have lasted, 
It's just very, very inspiring. And I'm glad. I'm glad that you brought this story to our attention, Bridget. <laughs> oh, thank you for giving me the space to nerd out on this. Yes. Honestly, it truly is because I saw that badass picture of her on Old School Cool on Reddit. So whoever put that on Reddit, thank you. Yes. Listeners, please, if you have not seen that picture, look it up. She is amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. It's so cool. Just so cool. Just goals. <laughs> if I had goals, that would be one of them. Yeah. Her picture. Same. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can achieve this, Samantha. Now the time. I don't think so. I would fall out. Like, there's so many levels of cool that I couldn't hit. And <laughs> one of them would be actually sitting like that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm worried for her back health. Right. She's like really lean back. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks as always for being here, Bridget. Where can the listeners find you? Well, if you want more nerding out on all things tech and the internet and things of that nature, you can definitely check out my podcast on iHeartRadio called There Are No Girls on the Internet. We would love to have you there. And you can follow me on social media. I'm at Bridget Marie on Twitter and at Bridget Marie in DC on Instagram. Yes. Uh, so go check out that podcast and follow Bridget if you don't already. Listeners, and we can't wait to have you again, Bridget. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Yes. We'll talk sex in the city, I bet. Oh. <laughs> and just like happen. that. <laughs> and just like that. And you don't get that joke because you don't watch the wonder. show. <laughs> I don't want to be left out of the conversation. And I couldn't help but wonder. <laughs> I couldn't help but wonder. All right, all right. I'm down <laughs> to watch it. I'm just a little nervous, but I'm down to watch it. <laughs> uh, it'd be so bad. <laughs> I, yes, yes, it will be. It will be. And if you'd like to contact us, listeners, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You or on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 